Thank you so much. Good morning. We're delving back into 2 Thessalonians, and as we do so, we're going to be looking at how the past, the present, and the future all connect together, because when you reach 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, you're looking at one of what I would call the 22 pivotal passages in the Bible pertaining to the last days. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 down through verse 5, there are going to be some key expressions that make their way before us. Statements like the day of the Lord, a reference to somebody called this one, the man of lawlessness. We're going to be looking very carefully at other aspects of that day still to come, pertaining to, for example, the desecration of the temple and so on. And in some ways, I'm going to have to simply say that what we do today will continue on next Sunday as well as we delve even further into this subject. So hopefully you've made your way to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to be examining very carefully, phrase by phrase, verse 1 down through verse 5, where we find these words. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So we're going to look very carefully now at what Paul is writing here, because once again, you and I are connecting past, present, future together. And this is one of those days you've got to put your thinking cap on with me. And we're going to think through very carefully what it is that God wants to say about what's still to come as we look to our Lord in prayer. Our Father, we come before you now, and we're continuously aware of what's happening globally, what's taking place nationally. We live in what's going on regionally, and nothing surprises you. Everything, Father, everything is under the umbrella of your sovereign doings and care. We continuously look to you, the one who's got this world on a timer, his hand upon the thermostat. We know, Father, that all things are according to your plan, ultimately. We see how the beginning of this world and the end of this world find their centerpiece in Jesus who came into this world in the fullness of time. Born of a woman. One born under the law. 
came to die for our sins. And the resurrection validates what he did. And the second coming of Jesus Christ finds its connecting point to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, Father, all these things now force us to fit together this master plan puzzle that the average person looks at and sees nothing but scattered pieces and wonders what's the meaning of all of this. And your word explains to us the meaning of all this. So that's where we turn now. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. We've come here, Father, again to see Jesus and, and him only. And we're praying these things still now, in, again in Jesus' name. Amen. It was March 11th of 1942. It was Corregidor in the Philippines. And the 62-year-old army officer was taking his family and others close to him and secretly slipping away from the Philippines into what one might call almost a minor miraculous journey into, into the land of Australia. But before General MacArthur left the islands, he said and stated something that has gone down in the course of history as one of those powerful statements of all time. I will return. And two and a half years later, on October 20th of 1944, he stood again on the soil of the Philippines and said, this is the voice of freedom. People of the Philippines, I have returned. Now, if you think that a man with, can have that kind of credibility, and if you can appreciate that degree of ability to be able to make that happen, then ponder the significance of the one who died on that cross for our sins and yet would speak of his coming and overcome that grave and three days later be raised from the dead and the resurrection then becomes that validating point, not merely looking back toward the finished work to the on the cross, but that future work of Jesus Christ's return. So the resurrection and the return have got to be connected together. Now the apostles, at the time in which Jesus Christ were processing that final statement that he would deliver to them, with regard to their mission, we're told that he would say to them, it's not for you know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, the physician Luke then informs us, as they were looking up, he was lifted up, 
And a cloud took him out of their sight, and while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way, bodily, geographically, visibly, come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So in essence now, we are dealing with a statement, I will return. Now the Thessalonians are wrestling with this whole promise that had been delivered to them. Paul in Acts 17, as you and I note, for three consecutive Sabbaths have been explaining how everything, past, present, and future, finds its pivotal centerpiece in Jesus Christ. And so as he expounded the Older Testaments as it related to Jesus, it would have been a remarkable thing to have watched them as they were processing what Paul would teach them with regard to Christ's return because we are dealing here with a situation in which the Thessalonian people are feeling the oppression and facing persecution. There's Jason taken away into prison for being one who is in allegiance, not merely with Paul and Silas, but furthermore in allegiance with the one that Paul and his accompaniment have put their faith and trust in Jesus. And so now the Thessalonians are looking at the political landscape and they're feeling the growing pressure where it seems like there is this alienation. There is this growing pressure and it seems as though the winds are contrary to the cause of Jesus Christ and they're standing there with the wind in their face and they're wondering, where's Jesus? Maybe this morning you're wrestling with him. Where is Jesus in the midst of my experience? What I want to do with you now, and we'll continue on next week with this study, but for today, we're going to draw out three significant warnings that we find here that Paul delivers to the Thessalonian people that relate to 2016 living as well with regard to the return of Jesus Christ. Let's check them out. And number one, the first warning that was regarding the return of Christ, I want you to notice with me the challenge in verses 1 and 2, do not be troubled. He begins with this phrase, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you see that word concerning, you're going to want to circle it because it's one of three significant words which are used by writers who talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ to describe what will take place. The Greek word here, concerning, concerning the coming, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here this word is parousia, and it carries with the idea of being by, that Jesus comes to once again to be by his people, draws out the idea of his presence, his coming, his arrival. It was used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15. 
when Paul had previously written, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming parousia of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Another word, apocalypse, which means literally revelation, that Paul will use in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. And a third word, epiphany, means literally manifestation. So now, Paul is saying here, now concerning this matter that's on your minds, you're wondering now, are we in the day of the Lord? We're feeling the pressure, we're feeling the oppression, we're feeling as though we're being enclosed by opposition to what it is that you, Paul, have taught us during those days in which we gathered together in the synagogue, now concerning the parousia, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he adds this, and our being gathered together to him. The word gathered comes from the Greek word to synagogue. When Paul was teaching them in Acts chapter 17 on three consecutive Sabbaths, he was teaching them about the first and second comings of Jesus Christ. Where? In the synagogue. And so now what he's doing is he is using word imagery here at this point to talk about the synagoguing of God's people when all these things will be made perfectly clear. And so, our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, and notice this now, that in the midst of the challenge, do not be troubled. He begins to draw out the aspects of their troubled hearts. Not to be quickly shaken in mind. Pause. So now, when you're watching world events, when you're processing what's happening right now in this nation, when you're looking at how all these things are affecting people globally, and yet how you yourself are beginning to feel emotionalized personally, take a good hard look at what Paul now has stated in verse 2, not to be quickly shaken in mind. The phrase shaken in mind carries with it the idea of, of a ship which has been set apart from its moorings. A storm has erupted on the seas, and now that ship is adrift, and there are people on that ship. It carries with the idea of a singular act. Something has been said. Perhaps false teachers have arrived on the scene in Thessalonica, and now all of a sudden they find that their emotional state is simply overwhelmed with what has just been stated, taught to them. They're troubled. Paul's addressing it now. He spots their emotional state. We are not to be quickly shaken in mind, giving up so quickly our biblical convictions with regard to what it is that's been stated. But then he adds the next phrase, or alarm. Not to be quickly shaken deals with that singular event. Somebody entered into your life, and all of a sudden things are disrupted. You're beginning to question the word of God. 
And out of that then comes this next phrase here, or alarmed, which carries with it the idea of being continuously in an anxious state. As a result of it all, doubt has set in. Maybe because of life's circumstances. Paul goes after that thing, addresses the issue of the hour. He's challenging you, challenging me not to be quickly shaken in our biblical convictions, no matter what's happening in this world, or alarmed. And you pause, and you begin to ask yourself, and what is it that typically shakes me? What is it that alarms me? Where am I vulnerable day in, day out? Years ago, the Argentine tennis pro, Guillermo Villas, was being interviewed in Sports Illustrated. And he was looking back in his heyday when he was top-ranked globally in tennis. And he said this. It's interesting. Fervently, I think that many times one feels oneself to be secure on the mountaintop of all experiences. And then suddenly, one's world falls down like a pack of cards in a matter of seconds. Ever have that happen to you? And all of a sudden, everything just kind of comes apart. And you feel like you're on that ship that's lost its moorings. And you find yourself in this emotional state. You're wondering now what to do with the information you've just processed. Now, what Paul does at this point is he spots the source, the reason why these people become so troubled, why they have begun to think that perhaps the day of the Lord is actually present. Notice what he says here. Either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. Now, evidently, they grappled with how to be able to discern the Holy Spirit. At the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19, they had been told, do not quench the Spirit. At the same time, the apostle John in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, informs you and me that with regard to things that are being taught, whether it be on radio or television or wherever, beloved, do not believe every spirit, Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And typically that rises when there are hard economic times. That tends to take place when there is political turmoil. And then you have to be aware of what might be occurring during the course of those days. Here's what's fascinating. Immediately after the time when Paul had found himself positioned in Thessalonica where he could teach God's word, because of the political persecution described in Acts 17, 1 through 9, we're told that he and his companions made their way to the next stop, Berea. Again, they entered the synagogue, in other words, the synagogue together, And we are told that these Jews received the word with all eagerness, listen, examining the scriptures daily. 
to see if these things were so. Do you find yourself doing that? Here's what grips my attention. The physician goes on to write that many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men, but when the Jews from where? Thessalonica learned that the word of God was being proclaimed by Paul Berea, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Paul himself has seen it firsthand in the synagoguing of the people in Berea. And now what he says to the people of Thessalonica as he looks back over the experience, do not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit, or second of all, a spoken word, or thirdly, a letter seeming to be from us. Notice how he authenticates his writings. He puts his John Hancock on quite frequently at the end of particular letters that he's penned. What that means then is that you've got to look for the authenticity of what it is that's being stated when you hear God's word supposedly being proclaimed. Beware of the one who states a text, veers off and goes into the atmosphere for 10, 15 minutes and then lands back on the Bible for all five seconds and is gone again. We've got to be able to follow it phrase by phrase, word by word, to make absolutely certain we are dealing with truth like the Bereans did. It was after one of my call-in radio programs in Pittsburgh and I was heading down to the main floor and then out to the car. And a well-known pastor, nationally, internationally, and I were walking together. If I said the name, you would know immediately who it was. And so as we were walking together, John and I looked at one another, and we were talking about what was occurring in the world at that point, and a woman was listening in, somewhat removed, but she came rushing up to him and said, I know you, I know you. I listen to you and my family who are missionaries overseas, they listen to you as well. And she said, I could always identify your voice in a crowd. You need to be able to identify the voice of Jesus, the word of God. Even in a culture of ours where there is a collision of spiritualities and competing voices, you're looking for the word of God. Keep your finger on the text. Notice then the threefold phrasing. Either by a spirit, test the spirits, or a spoken word. Ponder that in this high-tech world of social media of which we now live. Or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And you say, Gary, the day of the Lord? How am I to understand that? When Paul was reasoning from the scriptures of the Old Testament, obviously he had reached a point then when he was connecting Jesus to what we would describe in the Bible as the day of the Lord. 
key passages would be such as Joel chapter chapter 2, where in verse 28 through chapter 3, verse 21, a major description of the day of the Lord, speaking of a period of time to come, is unfolded for us. Other books, Zephaniah and Zechariah as well, disease. Common catchwords, sometimes described as the day of clouds and thick darkness. Another phrase, the day of trouble. A third, the day of vengeance. And now the Thessalonian people are wondering, am I in the midst of all this? What have I done to deserve this? The character of the day of the Lord is such that it's the time when God will come to judge the world with righteousness. The day is always pending. It's near and yet distant. Both are combined in one singular perspective, the now and the not yet. It's the time of God's wrath against the wicked. It's the time of cosmic gloom and darkness and ultimately an unprecedented battle that we would know as the Battle of Armageddon. And so now they're processing this and they're thinking about this. And likewise, people today have got to think about such things. Certainly JFK did. When in a particular moment, standing with Billy Graham, he entered into a conversation shortly after his election. Billy Graham in his book, Just As I Am, tells it this way. On the way back to the Kennedy house, the president-elect stopped the car, turned to me. Billy, do you believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ, he asked. I most certainly do. Well, does my church believe it? Speaking of his Roman Catholic church. They have it in their creeds, Billy Graham responded. But they don't preach it, he said. I... They don't tell us much about it. I'd like to know what you think. Graham says, I explained what the Bible said about Christ coming the first time. Dying on the cross to save us from our sins. He was sharing the gospel. Rising from the dead and then promising that he would come back again. Only then, I said, we're going to have permanent world peace. Now, JFK would have to go head-to-head with Khrushchev in the Bay of Pigs incident. Very interesting, he said, looking away. We'll have to talk more about that someday. Drove on. A few years later, the two met again. National Prayer Breakfast, 1963. Graham says, I had the flu. After I gave my short talk, He gave his. We walked out of the hotel to his car together, as was always our custom. They were close. And at the curb, he turned to me, Billy, could you ride back to the White House with me? I'd like to see you for a minute. Mr. President, I've got a fever, I protested. And not only am I weak, but I don't want to give you this thing. Couldn't we wait and talk some other time? It was a cold, snowy day, and I was freezing as I stood out there without my overcoat. Of course, he said graciously. But we're told that the two would never meet again because later that year, Kennedy was shot dead. 
and Billy Graham comments. His hesitation at the car door. His request. Haunt me still. What was on his mind? Should I have gone with him? It was an irrecoverable moment. You and I need to be managers of our moments. Stewards of our times. Like the sons of Issachar, the Older Testament, who knew the times. So you're analyzing world events. You're processing the primaries. You're thinking through all the issues globally, nationally, regionally, locally, personally. And here now, he's inching you in towards an understanding of the day of the Lord. You're not to be quickly shaken. You're not to be alarmed. You're supposed to spot on the basis of examined truth when you are dealing with a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seemingly from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And you process that in light of what God's word has truly said in your first warning. Do not be troubled, verses 1 and 2. Your second warning is found in verses 3 and 4 regarding the return of Christ. Do not be deceived. And in verse 3, he goes on to say, Let no one deceive you in any way because you're a student of the word. You're like a Berean that works things through daily. For that day will not come, and now what does he do for you, and what does he do for me? He offers us three significant precursors of what will take place prior to that day of the Lord. What are they? The first. The rebellion comes first. Look at what's stated here. At the end of verse 3, For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Now, there have been prior rebellions nationally, even globally. Think World War II, for example. The word rebellion here comes from the Greek word apostasia. We get the word the apostasy. While there have been many apostasies, there's a definite article here. That's used. The rebellion, not a rebellion, not one of many. In other words, there is an ultimate rebellion that must come first. So he says, let no one deceive you. Now the problem is, is that we live in a world of so-called reality television programs and on and on. I'm amazed by the degree of deception in reality. That is non-reality reality so much of the time. But that's the case when you look, for example, at all the occurrences and the tensions and the dynamics. Take yourself back to, say, World War II. In his history, Paul Johnson, the book Modern Times, tells us of the magnitude of the Stalin tyranny. Jews were being persecuted in the Soviet Union as they were being persecuted in Germany. 
Most of those who traveled, he writes, to Russia were either businessmen anxious to trade, with no desire to probe or criticize what did not concern them, or intellectuals who came to admire and still more to believe. There was a vacuum in the minds of people. George Bernard Shaw pointed out that in Great Britain, where he was from, a man enters his prison, a human being, and he emerged as a criminal type. But in Russia, he entered the Soviet prisons and labor camps as a criminal type and would come out as an ordinary man. But for the difficulty of even inducing him to come out at all, as far as I could make out, they would stay as long as they liked, he said, because they recognized the deception. Now the evil one, even in that perfect setting, the Garden of Eden, came not as he was, but had to masquerade in order to deceive. And as he masqueraded in order to deceive as the serpent, entered into, of all things, a religious conversation. The evil one. And so we've got to ponder the significance of what's being stated here Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. But now, a second precursor. The number two, the man of lawlessness is revealed. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. There's your comma. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now, when you see lawlessness here, your mind should go back immediately what Jesus Christ himself had said with regard to his purpose of entering this world. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. If he had abolished the law, then this would not be the man of lawlessness. So the moral law is intact today. But what we have here is somebody who I had taught a great length on back in January of 2015. And if you go to January 11th's study of Daniel chapter 11, you would find an exposition on the one that the Bible also refers to as the Antichrist. Or, as Paul refers to, the man of lawlessness. And what we've spotted is that over the course of history, there have been many who have been anti-Christ. Those who are anti-the Messiah. From the earliest on in that Garden of Eden until you move into Exodus and the killing of the Israelite boys and onwards, say, to the days of Esther, when Haman wanted to do something with regard to putting away once and for all the Jewish population, to the Matthew account where Herod wants to make absolutely certain that that one who the Magi had come to seek out, the one born to be king, is put to death. There has been this anti-Messiah, anti-Christ line. In 1 John, in chapter 2, verse 18, John had written, Children, it is the last hour. And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists, plural, 
have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. So now the challenge for you, and the challenge now for me, is to make absolutely certain that we are steeped in God's word, to be able to discuss these things with people who are wrestling with why is the world in the condition that it's in, and where is all this heading, and you are able to articulate your knowledge of history from Antiochus Epiphanes, which we covered last year in Daniel chapter 11, an early stage Antichrist type who desecrated the temple. On into the World War II era of Mussolini and Hitler, Stalin and the likes, Hirohito, on into this present time period in which we live, where we watch Coptic Christians being put to death by those ones of ISIS. And we can see here that here, First John, for example, chapter 2, verse 18, so many antichrists have come, helps us to understand that just as there is a line of Davidic sons who passed on the promise until the ultimate son of David came, Jesus, so there is also an anti-messianic line of power grabbers who are simply placeholders until the ultimate one comes, the antichrist tied to the rebellion, and then you find that all of those prior fulfillments are foretastes of the ultimate fulfillment still to come. And you say, but Gary, is there still one more aspect, one more precursor, so as we can help people in this world to understand these things? Yeah. The rebellion comes first. The man of lawlessness is revealed, second. But thirdly, the temple is desecrated. The man of lawlessness is revealed, you see in verse 3. He's then described as the son of destruction. And if you and I were reading carefully in John 17, we'd realize that Jesus used the very same phrase to label Judas. Paul then goes on in verse 4 to say, who opposes and exalts himself. In other words, this is a political leader who evidently makes a claim of some form of religiousness about him, who uses this as a means to begin to draw attention to himself, glorifies himself, exalts himself, against every so-called God or object of worship, so that, notice very carefully in verse 4, he takes his seat in the temple of God, and then shades of Genesis 3 temptation, shades of Isaiah 14 pertaining to Satan's fall, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, you pull all this together, One more time, let me take you back to World War II. Why Paul is saying here, do not be troubled, number one. Do not be deceived, number two. And with regard to this deception, there was of all people a pastor, Joachim. Joachim Hassenfelder. And Charles Colson, the late Charles Colson, in his book Kingdoms in Conflict, describes Hassenfelder as the head of the German Christians, a Berlin 
pastor presiding over services in Nazi uniform. And after the usual parade of swastika-bedecked flags, a fanfare of trumpets and throaty chorus of now thank we all our God, Hassenfelder then announced that in his diocese, all Jews would be dismissed from office. It would be put into effect immediately. He also announced that Martin Niemöller and other leaders of the Pastors' Emergency League were going to be suspended since their activities were entirely foreign to the true spirit of Germany. But astoundingly, at each and every pronouncement, the crowd erupted with a resounding cheer in the midst of their so-called worship service. His final admonition, the main speaker of the evening, challenged that there was to be, therefore, pertaining to the Bible, a re-examination for non-German elements, liberation from the Old Testament with its Jewish money morality, and also meant purging the New Testament of its Jewish elements, especially the unheroic theology of the Apostle Paul with his inferiority complex, and a proud heroic Jesus must replace the model of, quote, the suffering servant, unquote. And meanwhile, what we desperately need and still need are some Bereans who examine the scriptures daily to see if what we are observing is meant to be. Now, you pull all that together. You've got history to back you up. You've got a messianic line leading towards Jesus. You've got the anti-messianic line leading towards the ultimate one who is anti-messianic. And he is saying here in verses 1 and 2, do not be troubled. Number 2, do not be deceived in verses 3 and 4. And now finally, do not be forgetful in verse 5 where he then says, do you not remember? I mean, the false prophets, false teachers have appeared on the scene in Thessalonica and made them think, we're in the day of the Lord. Paul has just gone through three significant precursors. And then he says, don't you remember? Do you not remember that when I was with, was still with you, I told you these things? And that was in the synagogue. And he says in chapter 2, verse 1, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being synagogue together. And then he goes on to develop his thoughts. And so it's March 11th, 1942. I will return, says this leader. Two and a half years later, he appears on the soil of the Philippines and says, this is the voice of freedom People of the Philippines, I have returned. And what we do is we pull all this together. We begin to explain to others evangelistically in the mode of discipleship how to understand world events in the light of the first and second comings of Jesus Christ. And you're helping people take the puzzles of this world and fit them together for the glory of God. To be continued next week. Let's stand together. So Father, 
Help us now to understand more thoroughly what it is that's in your word. To be like the Bereans, examining the scriptures daily and evaluating everything that's being said in this world, even in the religious circles, by the authority of your word, so that we have clarity of thought and a heart, Father, to be able to share effectively with conviction the truth of your word, which teaches us that Jesus died for our sins, was raised from the dead, and the resurrection not only validates the crucifixion, the resurrection validates the belief in the return of Jesus. Thank you for being our God and for connecting the dots for our lives. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.